Welcome everyone to episode 22 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and welcome back from our week off. I was able to finally get the third bonus episode done and released on my Patreon. So if you're not a member, you're missing out on three bonus episodes and future video content as well. The story that I have for you today is the mysterious disappearance of Beverly Potts and a few ghost stories from yourghoststories.com. So sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Beverly Potts was born April 15, 1941, in Cleveland, Ohio. She was described as a shy and quiet girl, and she was very responsible. She was fascinated by the performing arts, and she was set to start the fifth grade in the fall of 1951. At the time of her disappearance, she lived with her mother and father, Robert and Elizabeth Potts, and her older sister, Anita. On August 24th, Beverly and her friend Patricia were given permission to go to the park at night to the local show wagon that was doing an annual children's performance event in Halloran Park, which was less than a quarter of a mile away from her home. This was a rare occurrence for her to be allowed to go into the park after dark, because it wasn't known to be the safest place at night. The two girls rode their bikes to the park at around 7 p.m., and at 8 p.m., they decided that it would be easier to navigate the crowds without their bicycles. So they rode their bikes home and then walked the quarter of a mile back to the park so they could enjoy the show. At 8.45, Patricia said that she had to go home because she promised that she would be home before dark. And Beverly decided to stay and finish the show because she was given permission to do so. The show wasn't due to end until sometime after 9 p.m. At around 9.30 p.m. when the show ended, a 13-year-old boy who knew Beverly reported that he saw her leaving the park, walking northeast through the park towards her street. This was the quickest route home and should have only taken her a few minutes. Several other witnesses claimed to have seen a girl resembling Beverly standing on the corner of West 117th Street, talking to two males that were sitting in a black 1937 Dodge Coupe. This happened sometime between 8.30 and 9.30 p.m. according to the reports, but none of the witnesses saw her enter the car. When Beverly didn't return home by 10 p.m., her parents began searching the area for her, 
and after not finding her for an hour, they called the police. The police immediately began a large-scale search of their own, but were unable to find any trace of Beverly. Even after several days' investigation, including door-to-door canvassing of nearby neighborhoods, tracing suspicious cars, searching nearby vacant lots, and using a plane to survey open railway cars, police received and investigated thousands of telephone tips, which had been spurred by the extensive press coverage of the disappearance, but none provided any solid leads. Her family members were quickly cleared and investigators determined that her home life had been pretty stable and by all accounts she was a very happy child and there appeared to be no reason for her to have run away. Beverly was known to be unusually shy, especially around males and particularly cautious of strangers. Investigators theorized that she had most likely been enticed into a nearby house or car on her way home by someone that she knew, perhaps with the promise of a babysitting job, because she was regularly hired as a sitter for her neighborhood children, or a request to run an errand. It was thought that she might have been killed by a neighbor and buried in or around one of the nearby houses on Lynette Avenue, and at least one search to that effect was carried out in 1973 in the basement of what by then was an auto body shop. However, no signs of Beverly were found there or anywhere else, and no plausible local suspects have ever been uncovered. Shortly after her disappearance, a $1,500 reward was offered by her father's union. There were several suspects that emerged over the years, but none can be definitely linked to the case. In 1955, Harvey Lee Rush, a drifter and Cleveland native, told the police in California that he had killed Beverly after luring her to a nearby bridge with candy. However, he placed the murder in 1952, a year after her actual disappearance. Rush then recanted his entire story shortly after being extradited to Cleveland, saying that he had confessed merely as a way to get back to his hometown. In 1980, two retired Cleveland police detectives, James Furist and Robert Shanklin, revealed that in 1974, they had received a tip from a local attorney with a client whose brother had supposedly confessed to abducting Beverly. The detectives found and questioned the brother, who they said had readily admitted to having lived near Halloran Park in 1951 and making a habit of picking up and molesting young girls there. The man did not remember abducting Beverly in particular, but said that he had flashes of memory involving a girl named Beverly. The detectives were convinced the man was guilty, but the county prosecutor's office refused to pursue the case, citing a lack of evidence. William Henry Redman, an Ohio native and former carnival worker, was indicted in 1988 for the 1951 Pennsylvania murder of eight-year-old Jane Marie Athoff. While in prison, Redmond reportedly told a cellmate that he had killed three other young girls. When he was questioned about the Potts case, Redmond refused to make a statement one way or another. 
He was in the general area at the time of Beverly's disappearance, and he had a record of child molestation dating back to 1935. However, Beverly would have been considerably older than his previous victims. In 1994, a letter was discovered under a carpet in a Cleveland house, written by a woman who claimed to have caught her husband disposing of Beverly's body in their furnace. Upon being traced and questioned by the police, the woman said that the allegation was false, that she had written the letter solely as a revenge fantasy against her abusive husband. More letters were sent to reporter Brent Larkin of the Cleveland Plain Dealer beginning in 2000, purporting to be from an elderly man who claimed that he wanted to confess to molesting and murdering Beverly before his death. The anonymous author pledged to turn himself in on August 24, 2001, on the 50th anniversary of Beverly's disappearance. But shortly beforehand, he wrote again to say that he had to enter a nursing home and would be unable to honor his promise or otherwise reveal himself. An extensive investigation failed to turn up any clues to the author's identity. Larkin now believes the letters to have been a hoax. Beverly was never found, and no one knows what really happened to her. Her mother died in 1956, reportedly from a broken heart from her daughter's disappearance. Her father died in 1970, and her older sister never stopped searching for her until her death in 2006. There is a memorial for Beverly next to her parents' gravesites. I'll never understand how some people can be so evil to do something like this. Whether you believe in Bigfoot or ghosts or demons or not, monsters do exist. But they're human. The next story is from YourGhostStories.com. And while taking place in Kentucky and not in Ohio, it was too good to not share here. Since Kentucky is so close, I figured it wouldn't be a big deal. I'll be reading from the author's perspective. Upon many just awful life circumstances in a particular region of the United States, I decided to take my two children and move to a more rural and desirable location for all of us to live. When I told my children that we would be moving to Kentucky and showed them photos online of the deer, snow, large field and farms, they were so excited. I could barely contain my excitement as well, just seeing how happy it made them. A couple months had passed, and we were moved into our new apartment in Kentucky. Taking walks on the trails in the evenings after school and work, enjoying seeing the wild deer run along our apartment complex, and even snow, just as we had waited for. We had spent all of 30 days in our new apartment when the governor of Kentucky shut down all public brick and mortar schools for COVID and switched to online learning, which meant I was now out of work. Although I was feeling defeated, like I had just made this huge change for my family and it was beginning to crumble already. I kept my spirits up and we went about our days as normal as we could. I stuck with our morning routine and same evening routine, but throughout the day, we were home now, 
and I began to notice small things that I dismissed as my kids not being honest with me. One afternoon, after completing lunch and finishing the dishes, I stepped out of the kitchen to serve my children lunch in the living room where they were doing schoolwork. I then went to use the restroom about 10 steps away from my kids' location in the living room. When I re-emerged from the bathroom, the children were in the same location in the living room and I walked straight to the kitchen to pour a glass of tea. I found all the plates in the dish drainer turned in the opposite direction as I had just put them. I stopped in my tracks. I asked my children what they came into the kitchen for and followed that up by saying that I would get them something because they need to be focused on their studies. They both were very serious and confused and they said that they hadn't gone into the kitchen. I completely dismissed them and said please don't do it again. They professed that they had not been in the kitchen. I had almost begun to scold them for lying, but I refrained. And I said, okay listen, let's just get back to our work. Which problem are you on right now? Can I help you if you need help? So the rest of the day went as planned. Another time, I noticed that my screens in the back windows had been pushed out. I went out back to put them in. I also asked my children who had opened the windows to do such a thing. They said that they didn't. I sat them both down and brought in one of the screens and I said, do you see this? This is the indent from the inside of the screen being pushed outward. I know that one of you pushed them out. They both repeatedly denied it. Neither tried to blame it on the other, which is their usual fashion if they are guilty. So I should have suspected something else being wrong. Then, just over 35 days of living in the apartment, we settled down for sleep that night, and we all fell asleep very well. My children woke up in the middle of the night and asked if they could sleep with me. So I said, let's all go sleep in the living room, so I can watch some TV to get back to sleep. We lay on the two couches, myself and my daughter on one couch, and my son on the other, angled facing ours and watching TV. We all began to fall back asleep. As I began to drift off, I turned off the TV and rolled over. I do recall rolling over several times in the middle of the night and going back to sleep, before I suddenly, and for no reason, I awoke, and not groggy but I awoke and felt fully rested, which was odd for me to feel in the middle of the night. I sat up. The room had light from outside filtering in through the blinds. And as I looked at my surroundings, I could see my son on the couch moving to the left of the couch. I could see him moving, but not his arms or legs. So I squinted my eyes and moved my head an inch or so closer to his direction, and I looked more closely. It wasn't him moving but rather him being picked up by his armpits, by nothing that had any shape or form. As he lay on his back and being dragged toward the left of the couch, I swore my eyes must have been seeing this wrong. I rubbed them right away, and as I finished rubbing them, I waited even a brief moment before opening them again, expecting not to see what I had just seen. But in fact, just then, the nothingness that had hold of his armpits dropped him and his body fell about six inches back onto the couch, which I saw with my own eyes. 
I then jumped up quickly and ran for the lights, and I turned them on. Then I turned all of them in the entire apartment on, and my children awoke. I was so scared, but I could not tell them why, as I didn't want to frighten them. So I told them that we were waking early today to get a head start of the day. An hour or so had passed before it even turned 5 a.m., and both my children were questioning why so early. So I said that I would take them for a nice morning walk when the sun rose, which we did. This day would be the last day we spent in the apartment, but we did not know it at this time. The afternoon went well. Nothing funny happened in the kitchen, nothing else noticed that day. Although I did feel several times that day distracted by what I thought I saw first thing when I woke up. I would then focus on my day's tasks again and try not to think about it. Soon it was the evening routine and after dinner, bath time, brushing the teeth, and then bedtime. Don't ask me why, but I felt we would be closer to the front door to run out if we slept in the living room again. So we laid down on both of the couches, except this time I moved to the couch my son was sleeping on closer to ours. I wanted us to all be close to one another and sleep with the TV on all night. My daughter and I were watching TV as I noticed my son had fallen asleep. After another episode had played, I looked over at my daughter and she was still awake. Thirty minutes had passed since my son had fallen asleep and I asked my daughter to close her eyes and she said that she wasn't tired. I was soon glad that she had asked for one more episode. Because right after I agreed and it started to air, my stun started shaking all over. Not like a chill sort of shake, but a violent shake. Arms and legs, my daughter and I sat straight up on the couch and watched for a brief moment. When I felt paralyzed for a moment as to what to do. I slowly got off the couch and I stepped towards him, still his arms and legs flailing and now his head was also starting, and I reached my hand to him, and right as I touched him, he not only stopped shaking, but his eyes opened right away to look at me, and he spoke and said, Hi, Mom. I stood back, because I could see his eyes as if he had been asleep. My daughter sat on the couch and screamed, Are you okay? I asked the same, and I told him he had just been shaking, and he said, I'm okay, I'm okay. I rolled over to go back to sleep. I pushed his covers up that had shaken off of him, and he rolled over. No sooner than I lie back down with my daughter on the couch, just the blanket, not my son, began to shake violently. My son was lying completely still this time. Again, we sat straight up. I yelled to my daughter in fright, Do you see that? She answered, Oh my God, Mommy, what is happening? I once again took a step towards my son and reached out my arm. And just before I was able to touch the blanket with my hand, the blanket shot directly up into the air as if it was pulled by the corner of the blanket and lifted. But nothing was in the room that could be seen. I was terrified. My daughter was screaming. And my son, however, was fast asleep until I touched him directly and that is when, without hesitation, he jumped to his knees and hopped over to our couch, and I again turned on all the lights. 
A few more terrifying occurrences that night as we were packing, however nothing more terrifying is that. We packed our bags, which were some clothing, and we went to a motel, and have never been back. All the rest of our belongings were left there. I wanted nothing to do with anything from that place. In fact, if I ever see anything resembling anything that I left there, I might shrivel in terror. We had such wonderful plans for our move to Kentucky, but it seems that something did not share in our enthusiasm. We have never looked back, and we have never seen anything like that before, nor afterwards, thank God. The final story that I have for you today is from the same website, and it's about one family's horrifying camping trip. I remember what happened during a camping trip about 11 years ago. My mom and dad had brought this used camper and they decided to bring me and my brother Pat. Pat's around nine years older than me, so you can imagine what we have in common. I don't remember much leading up to the events of what had happened at that campground, but I do recall that the camper was very old, probably from the 70s. My mom assumed that was the reason for the violent attack on us, that one night we tried to stay at that campsite or even that the campsite was located above a Native American burial site where the soil had gone sour, or at least that's what they call it. Or it could have just been from us trespassing, but whatever the case, something was definitely physically there, and it was something otherworldly, completely. And this would be my first encounter with the unknowns of the universe, unfortunately. I remember sitting around a campfire that night, trying to make s'mores with my family, though they always seemed to burn my hands and tongue. They were so hot. I'm also starting to recall that we cooked some hot dogs over the fire as well. Anyway, it was getting dark and everyone was getting tired, so we went into the RV to sleep, though I wasn't very tired because I slept on the way there. I remember I was still so small my mom had let me share the bed with her. I tried to get some sleep, but as the night went on, I still couldn't, and then something happened so terrifying that I still remember it vividly to this day. The camper started to shake and bang as something outside started to pound against the RV. My mom was the first to wake up and grasped me tight as she got really scared. I'm sure at first she thought that it was a bear or something, but then whatever it was hopped on top of the rooftop and started to try to bust its way in using the emergency exit on the top of the camper. I remember my mom got so scared that she quickly tried to wake my brother and my dad, but they seemed to be long passed out. Not even the constant banging had woken them. My brother Pat woke up for just a second and asked what was going on, but then seemingly passed out again. I remember my mom was near to crying. She was so scared for her family and for herself. My mom's a very religious person, so she got out a prayer book and started praying. And what was I doing? I was sitting there calm, and my mom's arms, as whatever it was, was out there and was wrecking the hell out of the camper. I wanted to look out of the curtains to see what it was, but my mom wouldn't let me. Although I did see a shadow, it looked like a dinosaur on two legs, something I'm sure nobody's ever seen before. 
As my mom began to pray more and more, it seemed to anger the creature. It went crazy outside. Now I wonder what kind of creature could keep up the strength to seemingly go on for hours until daylight, just pounding away at our camper like that. Throughout the night, my mom began to fear for my dad's life as he began to seemingly stop breathing and she would wake him every few minutes for a mere second to make sure that he was still alive. To this day, my mom still believes that while my brother and dad were sleeping, the thing outside was trying to possess them so it could use them to kill us, but I don't know about that. I watched the sun slowly rise as the blue sky began to light up, but even in pale sunlight, the creature persisted relentlessly. My mom read all night to me the prayers in that book and I think I still may recall some of them. The creature finally stopped attacking the camper, and my mom was relieved for a short while. That is, until my brother woke up to the banging five minutes before it stopped. After the banging had stopped, he wanted to go outside to get his shoes that he had left there, even though he had woken up to the banging of some psychopath outside. My mom pleaded with him not to go outside, but you can't keep a teenager from his van's shoes, I guess. He miraculously made it back unharmed with his shoes, but he did tell us about some weird footprints outside and claw marks all over the camper. And that's when my mom knew this thing was no ghost, but some kind of physical manifestation of something creepy. My dad woke up soon after, like nothing had happened. He basically set, slept through the whole thing, but my mom, on the other hand, was very brave. After my dad woke up, my mom told him all about it, and he was skeptical about it all. After all, my dad didn't even believe in an afterlife back then, even though he went to church every Sunday. Everyone went outside to look at the damage, my mom trying to keep me indoors for fear that the creature would come back. It was daylight now, and the other campers were wondering what the hell was going on as well. We all saw the damage that the creature had done. Footprints on the ground of a three-toed beast. Claw marks inches thick into the thin camper walls. My mom urged my dad to get us out of there fast. She wasted no time. Even after seeing evidence of the creature, my brother and my father denied it and forgot but that was perhaps the scariest night for my mom and the longest for me. On our way out of the camping area, police were on their way in and questioning the owners for what reason? I can only assume it was because of the ruckus that the creature had made all night long. They should have got there sooner. No kidding with that last part. That night seemed to go on forever. I remember that like it was yesterday. I think my dad had taken some pictures of the creature's footprints in the mud just for pure interest, but I'm sure those are lost somewhere. So all I have left from that night is my memory, and the only ones who really remember anything are me and my mom. And I was four, so some details may be left out, but it was definitely a night to remember, the longest night of my life. When we got home, however, it was a sad story as my mom believed that the creature still had managed to kill one of us 
as we had returned home to find that my brother's cat had been sitting in a trailer with the heater on in the summer for two days. We later brought the cat to the vet, where we knew he would be put down. Poor Jimmy. I wish I was nicer to the little guy now. I remember my brother crying over Jimmy, but maybe Jimmy just had bad luck. But you never know when it comes to the supernatural. But that night in the camper was more than that. Whatever that thing was, it was real as flesh and bone. Anyway, my parents sold the camper soon after, and it ended up causing trouble for my uncle too. But that's another story. Thanks for listening, and I hope you believe me on this one. Watch yourself out there on those camping trips. Such a creepy story. Being out in the woods in the middle of nowhere is one of the scariest places to me. Not knowing what could be just out of sight or behind that one tree just watching. Do any of you have any scary camping or hiking experiences? I would love to hear about them. And I'd also like to note that apparently I missed the part at the end about the poor kitty. And as a cat lover myself, I just feel horrible for them. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoyed the stories, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really goes a long way to helping other people find the podcast and to help it grow. Also, please share with your friends and family that like this kind of content. Don't forget to join us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. If you do enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. There's three tiers to choose from and access to the monthly bonus episodes from the $5 tier and above. There's three bonus episodes up now, and I'll have the fourth up sometime during the second week of April. Thank you everyone for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.